The market doesn't joke around, so why would you? Get serious. Choose Tasty Trade. Tasty Trade gives you the tools you need to make smarter moves. Dig into data with advanced charting, track profit accurately with order chain trackers, see risk clearly with curve analysis, and trade with low-capped commissions, stocks, options, futures, and more. All on one platform. No wonder serious traders choose Tasty Trade. Join the club, genius. Tasty Trading is a registered broker-dealer and member of FINRA and SIPC. Hi, I'm CNBC producer Katie Kramer, one of the voices behind the CNBC podcast Squawk Pod. In these times of uncertainty, we want to make sure we're bringing you, our listeners, as much information as possible as quickly as we can. That's why we're sharing with you now a CNBC special report, Markets in Turmoil. Listen in. Good evening. I'm Scott Wapner on day 169 of the coronavirus crisis. Tonight, new doubts about plans for pro sports to get back in business as cases spike in 21 states. The comeback of sports, suffering setbacks from the hardwood to the baseball diamonds on to the gridiron. Virus cases still spiking in several states. We have uh, less than two days' supply of blood. The virus causing a new problem for America's hospitals. Also tonight, a major Chicago employer lets the workers back in. See what your office is likely to look like. And the barricades for the police were intense. Doing business in Seattle's autonomous zone. This CNBC special report begins right now. Here's Scott Wapner. Welcome. It is good to have you with us on this Monday night. We do begin with the sports world facing fresh setbacks as leagues hope for a return. According to reports, several NFL players, including Cowboys star Ezekiel Elliott, testing positive for COVID-19. It comes as Brooklyn Nets star Kyrie Irving reportedly said he was against the NBA's return due to nationwide protests. CNBC.com sports business reporter Jabari Young with us tonight, along with Mark Gannis. He is the co-founder of sports marketing powerhouse Sports Corp. Gentlemen, it is good to see you. Mark, to the NFL first. How is this yep. news of the positive tests playing out, do you think, in the league office or better yet, Roger Goodell's basement? <laughs> and which, which home of his which basement uh, that he's in tonight? Here's the thing. Scott, uh, the NFL fully expected that there would be uh, uh, positive cases. The NFL players are part of society. So they knew it was a matter of when, not if. They've got protocols in place. They've been working with doctors and medical, with the Players Association, their doctors, and with doctors all across the country and the CDC. And they've got this, uh, they've got this covered. This was expected. Now it's uh, the phase is isolation. Then the next protocol will be participation. So they've, they've actually expected this. They actually expect that there will be players who will test positive even in the fall when games are taking place. I was going to ask you, what is the league willing to tolerate, do you think, in terms of a, a case number? It sounds from you as though they are expecting that these cases could rise and they're still going to play. Uh, they are expecting there will be cases, but they do expect that, you know, we're, three months ago, we just got the, the virus just took root. And look how much more we know three months later. The NFL season doesn't start for three months from now. Imagine how much more information, how much the protocols that we'll know that are better and how to deal with it uh, that we'll know in three months. So the NFL is going to use this time wisely. It's going to learn what happens with the NBA, Major League Baseball, the NHL, MLS, uh, the soccer teams in Europe, even the Australian rugby they're in contact with to make sure 
that the NFL and the NFL Players Association have as much information as they can, have the best procedures and protocols so the season takes place. And if there are players that, that get the virus, uh, they will be isolated, they'll be treated, and the games will still take place. Okay, speaking of the NBA, let's bring in Jabari Young now. And Jabari, we have issues, as we said, possibly uh, as it relates to the NBA coming back as well. What can you tell us tonight? Well, it's just the same, uh, you know, the, just the internal friction, you know, right? A lot of players probably uh, did not, ha- were, were not aware of all of the dynamics of what that bubble down in Orlando was going to entail. Um, they didn't know that the MLS was going to be there. They didn't know that uh, Disney uh, employees were not going to be quarantined. And so now you have a whole bunch of uh, uh, more questions uh, from a league body um, that's wondering, OK, what's going on and what are we going to do if guys get tested? And I think obviously you see guys like Dwight Howard and Kyrie Irving, uh, you know, having their own issues with going back because of the uh, protest and, and what's going on with our country from a, a social injustice standpoint. And they have every right to stand up for what they believe in. But from an economic standpoint, the players stand to lose a lot of money if they don't go back. So I don't think there's anybody around the league right now not thinking that July when the NBA wants to come back, that that date is not going to still be fulfilled. I just think it's a matter of who's going to go. And the NBA has made it clear they're not forcing anybody to go. But if you don't go, you don't get paid. So if the players don't go, they just sit out, they don't get paid. And I think that'll have their own form of protest. Some are voicing their concerns that maybe going would be better because of the high profile that that the players would have. Maybe LeBron James uh, among those taking that stand. What do you know about that? Absolutely. I mean, you know, listen, that's the platform. You know, when you're down in the NBA, that's a platform. And I don't think the NBA nor ESPN uh, nor Turner Sports, which the games will be aired on, uh, would uh, have any problem with the uh, players expressing themselves. And I think if you're the players right now, maybe you kind of go to the table, you go to the owners and you try to get more and you say, hey, listen, if you want us to come back, how about each owner donate uh, to, to, to some type of social injustice organization, some type of uh, economic reform in a neighborhood? How about you force the owners to give back? You guys want us to go back down there. You want us to risk our lives. You want us to risk our health to want us to go play. How about you give back to black communities uh, more than what you're doing? Set initiatives aside. Use this platform to not only uh, make make a stand, but use it for economic purposes. Because guess what? The owners stand to make a lot of money from, from the NBA players coming back down in Orlando and risking their lives to play. Yeah. So why don't you get something back in return? Mark, you alluded to this. Uh, the NFL does have the benefit of time. They do have the ability to wait and see how things unfold with, with, with the NBA. You think there's a time limit? How long is the league, do you think, willing to wait uh, and see how these things uh, transpire with, with caseload and things like that? Scott, one of the really interesting things about how the NFL has handled this is they haven't waited for anyone. They've adapted and adjusted as they've gone forward, but they've gone through every step they need to do the offseason. They had the virtual draft, which was a wild success. They had uh, free agent signings, which led to Tom Brady changing teams with tremendous attention and publicity. Uh, they've had off-season workouts done virtually. So what the NFL has done is it has it has adapted, it has adjusted, and it's going to continue to do so. And as information and health information gets better and better, they will continue to adapt and adjust. You know, one thing I can tell you, Scott, there is a really high level of interest for for the teams to come back, for the games to take place. People were worried about, well, will, will fans want to come to the games? The, the secondary market for NFL tickets is up 20%. That tells you that the fans are really clamoring to get back 
uh, to the games and to watch them in the stadiums. Let's finally, Jabari, turn our attention to what's happening with Major League Baseball, uh, which has been a mess from the start in terms of the negotiations between the players uh, and the owners. And there is more negative news tonight with the commissioner telling ESPN that he's less hopeful uh, that they will actually have a season. So here we're talking the NFL moving forward, the NBA still moving forward, though having a few issues they need to deal with, and Major League Baseball uh, taking two steps back. Yeah, I mean, listen, you have two sides that just don't trust each other. You know, the Players Association do not trust the owners, and the owners feel like they, they, they're, they're suffering more, and they want to prove that to the players. But listen, the MLB, okay, just agreed to a deal with Turner Sports that's worth about $3.2 billion dollars to re-up their new media rights package, okay? When that stuff like that comes out, the owners can, do not have any excuse. They can't claim that they're poor because they're getting all these media rights. So now when stuff like that leaks out, if you're the players, you have nothing to do but go back and say, hey, listen, you guys don't want us to play baseball. We'll see what happens. But at the same time, you don't, I don't see that you can have any sympathy for the owners when they just get a brand new TV rights deal, and yet they're asking the players to take less. It just doesn't make sense. All right. To be continued, we'll follow this story. Jabari, thank you. Mark Gannis, our thanks to you as well. It's not just the sports world facing issues related to the health crisis, coronavirus cases, rising now in more than 20 states. Dr. Scott Gottlieb is the former head of the FDA. He's now a current CNBC contributor. Dr. Gottlieb, it's good to have you back. Thanks. Let's, let's just play off the conversation we were just having. Sports are a tough dynamic. In some sports, you're going to have players all in a bubble scenario. In the NFL, you are not. You may have fans in some venues and not in others. Speak to the dynamic that exists and the worries that you would have. Well, look, I think they should be able to put in place a testing protocol and a protective bubble around these players where they should be able to play sports. Um, I think the most difficult aspect of that will be getting the players to conform to certain um, activities in their personal lives during the season where they're going to have to limit certain activities in order to make sure they don't come in contact with the virus outside of the the setting of um, playing the sports. But they should be able to do this. I think the sooner they do it, the better, because it's going to get more difficult probably as we get into the fall and the winter. But certainly right now, as the prevalence is low, as the epidemic is uh, subsiding to some degree, they should be able to get back to playing sports. Playing with fans is another question. Um, that, that enters a whole new dynamic, how you protect the fans in, in the stadiums. But the players themselves, you should be able to protect, and they have enough resources to do that. I know you're advising many states on how they've reopened. Have you had any conversations with any of the league commissioners or, or executives on what the future of sports may be? Not yet. I have a couple scheduled with some of the individual teams coming up, but I haven't had a chance to talk directly with them yet. But I would tell them the same thing. I think that there's a way to implement, um, you know, very strict testing protocols and a protective bubble around these players where you should be able to limit the likelihood that you get coronavirus in the clubhouse and on the sports teams. Obviously, these players are very close together. So if there's one case, there's likely to be more cases on the field. But I think you should be able to keep it out of the clubhouse um, so long as you're able to put in place good testing protocols, a bubble around the players, and get some control over what they do off the field as well. You, you, um, let's talk about the current state of affairs around the country. You, you tweeted just before we came on the air tonight, uh, some states are showing rising cases and rising positivity rates, and that suggests expanding outbreaks. Can you expand on what you're talking about here? Right. That's exactly right. So, you know, a lot of people are saying, well, the case counts are going up because we're testing more. And to some extent, that is true. We're testing more. So we're capturing more cases. 
But in some states, as the case counts go up, the positivity rates also increasing the percentage of people who are testing positive. So that suggests it doesn't suggest it shows an expanding outbreak in these states. So you look at states like Arizona, Florida, Texas, Alabama, Georgia, to some extent, California, you're seeing the positivity rates also go up as the cases go up. So they have outbreaks underway and they're going to have to get control of this. Alabama has a thousand cases they've hit, which is a lot for that state. Positivity rates creeping up. Arizona, the positivity rates around 16, 17 percent, which is quite high. Um, Texas and Florida around 7 percent. So these positivity rates are going up. They do have outbreaks underway. They have a chance to get control of it, um, but they're going to need to do it over the next week or two because you can easily lose control, as we've seen. There's also the issue of, you know, a second wave, so to speak, or whether this is the first wave that was never really contained. You say this is not a second wave. Texas seeing its highest number of hospitalizations since the whole thing started. And you tweeted again today, unless states with large number of cases can isolate and target those outbreaks, they could get out of control. How much in danger tonight are we of that scenario? Well, Texas still has an opportunity to take action. They're, they're going to be expanding the number of people, that, patrons that they allow in to close venues like restaurants. It's hard to eat, eat outside right now. It's 100 degrees in Texas. But they need to rethink that and slow some of the reopening um, because it is expanding in certain cities like Houston and Austin. So they can target measures in those cities to try to get control of this. Uh, but, you know, this is a dangerous situation. This is not a second wave. These are states that had smoldering infection all the way through. They never really crushed their infection. And now they're seeing a resurgence as they reopen, as it gets hot and drives people indoors, you're starting to see the infection rate go up. And so they're going to need to find ways to offset this and mitigate it. The hospitalizations are going up, too. Texas is adding about 100 hospitalizations a day right now, which is a lot. I think what the governors are looking at are those hospitalization rates and resource utilization in their hospitals. And they're not seeing their hospitals maxed out right now or even being close to maxed out. But what we've seen with this infection is once it reaches a certain point, it starts to explode. And so once they get a certain number of cases in those states, you know, in dense locations, they're going to lose control of this. So they need to they need to intervene right now. So in terms of the reopening and you write in your Wall Street Journal op-ed today that public officials need to uh, focus on, quote, building public confidence and minimizing wariness. Do you think they're doing a good enough job t to date of doing that? Well, the public's worry, and, and nobody wants to go back to shutdowns, and governors and elected officials don't want to go back to shutdowns. I don't think we have to, but what you need is good information about where the spread's occurring, and you need to target interventions at those locations. So, again, in Texas, you know, if you're finding that the infections are being transmitted in restaurants or bars, you take measures to de-densify those locations in the cities where the spread's occurring, maybe even close them for a period of time. So you target your interventions so you're not putting a burden on the entire economy. What we're also seeing is that the infection rates um, are t trending towards younger populations. So older people are doing a better job of protecting themselves this time around. And it's the younger people that are going out and getting infected. We do see a trend towards younger people on the whole comprising a larger percentage of those who are getting new infections. I saw a study today that suggested that a, a mutation in the virus is making it more contagious. Do you know anything about that? There's been various theories around this. I don't really buy any of them right now. Um, there's no good evidence that the virus has mutated in any way that's, having a, that's giving it different clinical characteristics. Uh, you really need very exquisite work looking at how the virus is changing and how its genetic characteristics are changing and correlating that um, with how it's affecting people. And we just don't have that data. It also would be unusual to see the virus mutate this quickly and a new strain become the predominant strain uh, and, and select for that particular strain. The initial strain was contagious enough to really occupy the space, if you will. There was also big news tonight. The FDA officially now 
revoking the emergency youth author authorization for hydroxychloroquine taken. Uh, that's number one. And then they also said that if it was taken with remdesivir, it could reverse the antiviral impact. Hydroxychloroquine, this was the drug, the medication that the president himself said he had taken. Yeah, the second piece of that's unfortunate. This was a non-clinical study, so it wasn't in people. It was a laboratory study looking at how hydroxychloroquine interacts with remdesivir. And it appeared that hydroxychloroquine blocked some of the antiviral characteristics of remdesivir. So there probably were patients who got remdesivir and were also on hydroxychloroquine that potentially, potentially could have had an effect where it reduced the um, potency of the remdesivir, a drug that we know works. So that's, that's unfortunate. It's why we need to be cautious about making these drugs available under things like an emergency use authorization. And why I think it was smart that FDA removed that today. There really isn't clinical data um, rigorous clinical data that supports the, the idea that this drug is delivering a benefit at this point. There's been a number of studies turned over. And my guess is FDA might have gotten a look at some of the randomized data as well that's going to be coming out, and that's what maybe tipped their hand. Um, that's certainly a possibility. Okay, I'm going to ask you to stand by. We're going to talk about another developing story, what perhaps is a cautionary tale for the United States tonight, a new outbreak in China sending its capital city into a new lockdown. CNBC's Yunus Yun in Beijing for us tonight. Beijing says that it's in wartime mode, battling its worst virus outbreak since February. 79 new cases have been confirmed and traced to a major food market here. The authorities have shut the market, closed schools in the area, and put 40,000 residents on lockdown. 76,000 people have been tested, with half the capital's districts now reporting cases. Health officials say the genome sequencing suggests that the strain is of a European direction and that it was imported. State media report that the virus was detected on a shopping board with imported salmon. Stores have stopped selling the fish, and suppliers in Europe say China has halted imports. The official media is calling for calm, though, saying staying rational will help keep the economy going. People have started talking online about canceling trips planned for the Dragon Boat Festival holiday next week. China is concerned about the outbreak's impact on its economy. The data for May released today showed a recovery, but not a very strong one. Eunice Yoon, CBC Business News, Beijing. All right, we appreciate Eunice's report. Dr. Gottlieb, I turn back to you. You said today that China, quote, crushed their virus. But now what do we make of what's happening in Beijing? How concerned are you tonight? Well, they should be concerned. This is a contagious virus, and once it gets into dense regions, it becomes hard to control. There's almost no way that that virus was imported on fish, by the way. Um, if you remember back in Wuhan, they also traced the virus back to fish cutting boards in the Wuhan market. Um, it might be more a question of how they're handling their fish in these markets, how people are handling fish who might be infected and then transmitting it through their food handling uh, practices rather than bringing it in on the fish themselves. Um, there's really no scientific basis for believing that this virus carried a ride on a fish, and that's how it got imported into China. Well, this goes back to the issue we've discussed for uh, weeks, if not months, and that is what information, Dr. Gottlieb, can you truly trust out of China, and how should American officials take what the Chinese say? regarding new outbreaks? Well, I think the reporting's pretty good right now on, on new cases in China. Um, there are a lot of people looking over what China's doing at this point and watching them very closely. So I think we could put some reasonable confidence in the data coming out of China. Um, even on the first go-around, with the, when, when they were reporting numbers out of Wuhan, 
you know, those numbers weren't accurate, but it was because they were, couldn't keep up with the virus in the same way we couldn't keep up with the virus here. So our numbers underreported the scope of our epidemic in New York as well. But I think we can put reasonable confidence in their reporting on new outbreaks. So I think where, where I have a lot of skepticism was on their early reporting when they were aware that there was an outbreak back in December and January and didn't report that to the world um, when there was opportunity for them, for China to take more aggressive action as well as other nations. Trying to think of what all the fallout is going to be from these new cases, not only in the United States, but these outbreaks we're seeing in places like Beijing and what it means for us here in the United States, even now, perhaps come the fall. You've thrown out the idea, and I I saw you mention this today, uh, of some countries barring Americans from traveling um, if we continue to have out of control outbreaks in some areas. Can you see that happening? I can see it happening. I mean, think about it right now. We probably have 150,000 infections a day. So we're diagnosing around 23,000 infections a day. You figure we're doing a better job of, of capturing infections. So maybe we're reporting one out of eight infections. We're diagnosing one out of eight infections, maybe one out of 10. So we have somewhere between 150 and 200,000 infections a day. That's a lot of infection around the United States. And so why would we ban travel from the U.K. right now, um, where there might be a couple of dozen cases imported when we have 150,000 new infections a day already? Already occurring in the United States. Um, I think it might be the reverse that other nations look to ban Americans coming into those countries, nations that have largely extinguished the virus for now, um, like Germany, like China, like South Korea, like Singapore, um, like Hong Kong, because we have more infection here. We have a higher prevalence here than those countries do. About one in 200 people in the United States is currently infected with coronavirus. Mm, something interesting to think about. Let's do a couple of tweets, if we could. First one, and you've spoken about this before, I believe. Why aren't all the vaccine developers pooling control groups to expedite phase three trials? Well, they should be. I think part of the challenge is that the vaccine trials got underway at different points in time, so it's hard to use a common control. And manufacturers typically don't like to do that because they don't like to run head-to-head vaccine trials. And so there might have been some trepidation on the part of some of the manufacturers. But I think it was more of a timing issue. Lastly, why can't or why don't or why won't states break out cases in nursing homes, prisons, hospital workers and meatpacking plants? Then the difference would be the general population. Give us a better idea. I think the spirit of the question is uh, exactly who has it and where. They should be. The, the reporting has not been good at a state level or a national level. Another piece of information that would be very helpful is breaking out cases by age and knowing whether or not it's older individuals getting infected or it's trending towards younger individuals. That would tell us whether or not older individuals are doing a good job of protecting themselves from this virus, which I think they are at this point. Yeah, I've covered a lot. Appreciate it as always. We'll talk to you again tomorrow night. Dr. Gottlieb, thanks. Thanks a lot. OK, here's what's coming up on this CNBC special report. A new victim of the coronavirus crisis, America's blood supply. See how bad things have become next. And a major employer brings employees back. See their new reality. It could be very similar to yours. Next. First, our country on Monday, June 15th.
CNBC has quick and easy to understand business news updates at the open midday and close every weekday. Markets, money, and more from Wall Street to Main Street. I'm CNBC's Jessica Ettinger. Follow and listen to CNBC Business News Updates wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back on day 169 of the crisis. Here are some more headlines on the virus tonight. National gym chain 24-hour fitness filing for bankruptcy protection. It has permanently closed 100 locations across 14 states. It has, though, secured funding to reopen most of its other gyms by the end of June. A U.S. airline trade group says carriers will increase enforcement of face masks on planes and passengers that don't comply could have their flying privileges revoked. And next year's Academy Awards, the Oscars being pushed back two months to April 2021. The nation's blood supply used in surgeries or other emergencies now at a critically low level. Chris Rhoda is the president of the American Red Cross Blood Services. Chris, good to have you with us tonight. Thanks, Scott. Appreciate having me on. Why is the supply so low? Well, we've seen unprecedented cancellations uh, we, we, from our sponsors across the country since the COVID crisis hit. We've had over 30,000 blood drives canceled and about 800,000 donations not collected as a result of those cancellations. Those are both large numbers. Uh, do you have any idea when you can start back up? Yeah, I mean, we're working hard. To, and part of what we're doing right here on this call is, is, is we're working hard to get folks uh, aware of the shortage that we have across the country, come out and donate. It really is an easy process. We just need people to step up, come out. We've, we've made the process very safe. They can safely come into our organization and donate, and hopefully people will hear the message and come out. Is that what you think the biggest issue was? People were just afraid to come in and, and donate blood? I mean, mostly it is, again, the locations that we would normally go, colleges, high schools, uh, faith-based organizations, businesses, corporations. As, as you know, of course, people aren't in those locations as we speak. We've seen the public come out well, you know, in, in pretty strong numbers over the summer or over the late spring and beginning of the summer. But um, hospitals have really driven up the amount of blood they need. We've seen about a 30% increase in the demand for blood over the last several weeks. Combine that with lower than normal donations, and you know, we have a severe shortage. Simple economics, demand outpacing supply. Um, yeah. Part of this, I would suppose, you know, this virus is so unknown, and it has, it has a devastating impact on, on a number of organs in the body. It requires, in some cases, uh, transfusions. Is that playing into a role as well, that these hospitals are just using their supply in the way that they are being forced to treat COVID-19? COVID-19 is not a big user of blood products uh, as a respiratory virus. We don't see a lot of that, right? Again, I think principally what we're seeing is the backlog of, of surgeries that were canceled for months as a result of uh, hospitals pulling back on those procedures to make room for potential COVID patients, as well as just the risk of having those patients in the hospital. And we're just seeing a lot of hospitals across the country begin to do those elective and scheduled surgeries again, and that's just pushing demand back up. What about the issue of, of antibody tests, which I now understand the, the Red Cross is getting involved in? Yeah, actually, uh, starting today, uh, all blood donors to the American Red Cross across the country will receive a, a COVID-19 antibody test. We hope this will provide donors with some information about their health status. So at least if they're negative, they'll know they've not been exposed. Uh, we also think this might be of use to health departments, local and state health departments across the country as we get a lot of data. We see 13,000 donors a day. 
Um, so we'll get a lot of information, a lot of data about prevalence from, or at least from, from a blood donor standpoint that we'll be able to share with public health officials. It sounds from the notes that you don't expect this situation, Chris, to get better anytime soon, that your sort of worst case scenario planning is a year out. It could take a year to have the, the level of blood drives and donations that you're used to. Is that right? Unfortunately, yeah, it's the case. I mean, we're, we're hearing, for instance, a lot about uh, schools and co- colleges and high schools. About 20 percent of our blood comes from colleges and high schools. We're hearing this fall that uh, a lot of those, uh, those locations and organizations may not be back on campus, or may, 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 and if they are back on campus, they may not allow blood drives. We know some businesses, as I've heard just in some of the notes coming up on the call, right, are, 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 won't be there in the future. Corporations are, are doing businesses in different ways, more people working from home. We just anticipate we're going to have a long-term problem with the way we've historically collected blood. We'll be following this important story. Chris, thank you. Appreciate it. Chris Rhoda with the Red Cross tonight. Here's what's coming up next on this CNBC special report. One large office in the city of Chicago welcomes employees back. See what they saw next. And a business owner who woke up to a brand new reality... Inside Seattle's new Capitol Hill Autonomous Zone, two minutes away. CNBC has quick and easy to understand business news updates at the open midday and close every weekday. Markets, money, and more from Wall Street to Main Street. I'm CNBC's Jessica Ettinger. Follow and listen to CNBC Business News Updates wherever you get your podcasts. Workers return. See what they saw inside the office of a major Chicago employer. Plus, living on the edge. A restaurant owner's new opportunity outside. But it comes with major challenges. And... Should I call in the boarding company to put up all the boards? And I decided no. Doing business where the police aren't allowed and where government doesn't matter. This CNBC special report continues. Once again... Here's Scott Wapner. Welcome back. It was quite a day on Wall Street as we take a look at what futures are pointing to for tomorrow. And looks like that late day comeback is going to carry over into tomorrow morning. Right now, the S&P 500 would open higher by 23 points. The Dow Jones Industrial Average higher by 211 points. And the Nasdaq by some 72 points. It was an interesting day, certainly a steep reversal uh, from where stocks had traded uh, overnight and into much of the day. The Federal Reserve coming out and saying that it is going to start buying individual corporate bonds. Remember, it had already made an announcement about high yield ETFs, exchange traded funds. This was another step uh, by the Fed today. It caused a reversal on Wall Street. And as you see at at this hour, quite early, as you always know, and as I always tell you, trading is thin. But right now, the picture looks pretty good. Here's what's coming up next on this CNBC special report. Meet a restaurant owner who just found a whole new world outside. His strategy and how close he is to the edge. Next. If you walk into El Tana and said, I'm hungry for justice, you get a free bagel and spread. And you've heard about Seattle's Capitol Hill Autonomous Zone. Now, meet a man with a business inside of it. First, our world on the 169th day of the coronavirus crisis.
The Kramer COVID-19 Index, up as stocks rally on Wall Street. Today's leading components, Teladoc Health, Zoom Video, Shopify, DocuSign, Dexcom. Watch Mad Money, 6 p.m. Eastern. It's good to have you back. JLL is a global real estate services and investment management giant with more than 93,000 employees in 80 countries. The company reopened its corporate headquarters in Chicago today, welcoming back 140 workers. Mary Bilbrey is the global chief human resources officer for JLL. She's with us tonight to show us the precautions her office is taking. Mary, thanks for being here. It's nice to see you. Yeah, thank you. Uh, Thanks for inviting me. It was a big day uh, today, 140 people, as we said, coming back. How did it go? It went really well. We've opened uh, 240 offices globally and 79 to date in the U.S., um, and they've all gone extremely well. We've taken a very thoughtful approach, a very planful approach in inviting our employees back to our spaces. Tell me about it. How, How does it look when the employees come back? What do they find? What looks different than it used to? Yeah. So we've taken an approach really listening to our employees uh, throughout the crisis, but really as we think about reentry as well. And certainly safety is a big priority. So we've had to you know, really reactivate our spaces, uh, making sure that they're, they're clean, that, this, that, that we reuse um, the space to make sure we have the social distancing. But more importantly, we want to make sure that we also have a warm and inviting space for employees to come back to. So thinking about the human experience, uh, giving employees a lot of communications up front. Our leaders have been great with outreach to our employees, sharing uh, videos with them in advance of what it's going to feel like, and using a lot of very uh, um, engaging signage so that when employees come back in, they don't feel awkward about how they sort of move around the space. It's, you know, We've given real clear guidance on how they can still be part of the, of the workplace, um, collaborate with their team members, feel more connected, but doing it still in the safe COVID, COVID environment. Yeah. Given you're, you're an HR executive, it doesn't surprise me that you're thinking the way you are, um, essentially about the psyche of the worker who has been yeah. through so much and is now coming back to a changed environment. We all have heard the importance of um, well-being and, and, and mental well-being throughout this crisis. And we really have to remember that employees and all, all of us sort of um, felt the impact of the crisis very individually. So as we think about bringing our employees back, we have to remember that we, we all are experiencing it in a different way. We might have issues with childcare still, with um, commuting into the office, maybe our own personal concerns with our health or health of our, of our loved ones. And so our approach to bringing employees back has been one where we do continue to listen to them. Our, our leaders are reaching out and making sure that they are flexible and adaptable to the employees' needs as we bring them back into the workplace. Will you be phasing things in, and when do you think the next group of employees will be able to come back? So we're following local guidance, our local government guidance, on the different phases of opening. Um, As I said, we have about 63% of our offices open here in the U.S., but by the beginning of July, um, we would anticipate that we would have most of all of our offices back open. And then we bring employees back in stages. So um, depending on the configuration of the building and the needs of the, of the offices, um, we've got to consider things like, you know, spacing employees out and staggering start time so that the usage of elevators can be accommodated or actually having people come back in various shifts so that we can invite more employees back but still have them safe in the space and be able to do the social distancing. You, you we ha- actually had some employees 
who were actually on the wait list to come back because they were looking forward mm. to coming back into our offices. You have the benefit of having, you know, going through this now, you know, before perhaps some other larger cities are are doing it. What advice would you have tonight for other for your HR colleagues, perhaps in other big cities? Yeah, well, I would say listen to your employees. So we did a lot of outreach during the crisis and, and in planning our reentry stages with our employees and really learned about what was important to them, how they're feeling about it, uh, where their concerns were, so that we could support them in a way that brought them back to our spaces again to feel more connected, to feel um, uh, more aligned with their with their colleagues, and m- more productive, actually, back in the workplaces. Nice to hear your story, and we will continue to yeah. follow it. Mary, thank you. Thank you. All right, that's Mary Bilbrey tonight with JLL. Meantime, Stephen Brown owns a chain of bagel shops in Seattle, and when the pandemic hit, he grew his delivery business. Sales were better than expected. Then he found himself at the epicenter of the protests there. Tonight, Eltana owner Stephen Brown describes what it's like to do business surrounded by protesters in Seattle's Capitol Hill Autonomous Zone, in his own words. We're at the dead center of Capitol Hill. This is where every night people gather, you know, thousands of people. For a few minutes, I thought, should I call in the boarding company to put up all the boards? And I decided, no, it wasn't what we wanted to project. And so we're now the, not only the only untagged business, but the only unboarded business. The barricades from the police were intense, impenetrable, double-layered on all four sides. Our staff would come in in the morning, and they might even have trouble getting in to turn on the ovens because the police officers who are on might be in the mood to argue. And customers would call us, and sometimes the phone would be handed from the customer to the police officer who would say, and we'd say, this is Stephen from Altana. Uh, please let Betty and device space. And now it's just kind of peace, people walking around peacefully, uh, a lot of people living in tents. They don't come in and order bagels and spreads. We take out bags and spreads and knives and spreaders. Um, and we do that every morning. If you walk into Altana and said, I'm hungry for justice, you get a free bagel and spread anytime any day. If you make a donation and just show us on your phone your receipt, um, just $25 to any of a number of causes, including Black Lives Matter, uh, you get a free half dozen bagels. We're blessed with a product that is both delicious and relatively high margin. So if somebody walks in and takes a bagel and spread um, uh, for free, that makes us super happy. And Brown says that to his surprise this weekend, his Capitol Hill shop so its highest volume of walk-ins since the start of the pandemic. Tonight's top stories, including breaking news from Major League Baseball and restaurants across America cooking throughout the crisis. That's next. On day 169 of the crisis, Here are the latest headlines tonight. The Associated Press says it's obtained a letter from Major League Baseball that says several players and staff have now tested positive for COVID-19. Follows a report earlier tonight that several NFL players, including star of the Cowboys Ezekiel Elliott, did as well. The FDA removing its emergency youth authorization for malaria drugs, hydroxychloroquine and chloroquine, saying they're unlikely to be effective in treating COVID-19. The agency also warning of potential 
interaction between the drugs and the antiviral treatment, remdesivir. And the Dow rising 157 points in a late-day comeback. Futures look like that's going to carry over to the morning. Southbound Barbecue in Rockland County, New York, reopened with outdoor seating last week. Problems for the restaurant, though, did not melt away. Pete Mason is the owner. He joins us live. Pete, welcome. Hi, Scott. How are you doing? I know you waited. I'm well, thank you. I know you waited a long time to reopen. When you did, what'd you find? Uh, you know, we had to do a little bit of a shift. Uh, we were trying uh, the takeout and the delivery only. Um, so it's kind of like a retooling of your entire business. Uh, all the muscle memory that existed for all of your staff uh, to kind of shift to this takeout business um and then now this staged comeback that we're doing uh we opened up outdoor in uh, phase two at the beginning of this week uh it was great having people back in the restaurant however uh you know it definitely was not the uh snap your fingers and everything's back to normal kind of business aside from the fact that you're dealing with a lot of issues now you have to run basically two businesses you're running an on-premise business as well as a takeout and delivery business at the same time, trying to bring your staff back. I didn't get a lot of my staff back yet. Um, and it's, uh, it's very challenging. So using everything as single serve, uh, the Santa Claus, the masks, the distancing, uh, everything else. Uh, in this industry, we do have one benefit in the fact that we have to have sanitary protocols to begin with. So, we kind of are ahead of the game uh, versus other businesses that are trying mm -hmm. to open up right now. What, what's your normal occupancy versus what you're able to do now? Well, we uh, do a lot of outdoor business in the summer. Uh, our size basically doubles for the summer weather contingent. So right now I'm, 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 I have legal capacity for 98 seats. Uh, right now um, I have 38 normally on my deck. Right now, I have 12. So it's a very difficult, sustainable business. Yeah. Were you able to get a PPP loan? Did, did you apply? We did. We actually applied when they first came out with it in the first round. We did finally uh, get some capital. Uh, had we not gotten that capital to help cover the payroll, we wouldn't be here right now. Um, it was uh, an arduous process. Obviously, you guys know everything was changing. Forget a daily basis. It was changing on a minute-by-minute -minute basis. Uh, my bank, uh, we jumped through major, major hoops. Uh, but we were able to get uh, the loan. Yeah, that's good to hear. And finally, as if it wasn't enough going through everything that you've been, we've been covering and you've been dealing with the issue of rising beef prices. Uh, the Yeah, with the supply chain has been uh, ridiculous to try to deal with. Um, when this whole thing started, we were, uh, you know, we, the supply chain really didn't get hurt that bad. But um, for a while there, about a three-week period, I when I could get pork, I was paying 40% more for it. When I could get brisket, uh, I was paying 80% more for it. Wow. Um, you know, and I can't raise my prices because I still have to attract customers, the ones that are left. So, uh, you know, in a business that has razor thin margins to begin with, you know, this it's going to be rough. I think in this reopen, you're really actually going to now start to see a lot of these places that survived a lockdown to 
now they're going to start to fail yeah. because they're not going to be able to speed up, ramp up, staff up, and still provide a guest service experience that people are uh, content with. Well, hopefully people will see this or they'll hear about it. They'll want some barbecue and they'll give you a shout. I appreciate, Pete, your time very much. Scott, thank you so much, man. All right. You take care. That's Pete Mason joining us. Speaking of restaurants, we'll give our shout out right now to those operating in the face of the crisis. The Columbia Inn in Montville, New Jersey. The Morning Fork in Sacramento, California. Dana's Bakery in Pittsburgh. Frenchie's Chicken in Houston. And Juju's Vegan in Lincoln, Nebraska. You can tweet me at Scott Wapner CNBC. Use the hashtag thanks for the grub with the name and the town of your favorite restaurant. You send us a picture. Well, might just get it on TV. You can go to CNBC.com for up to the minute information all night long on the markets and the virus. We are back tomorrow at 5 a.m. with Worldwide Exchange, 7 p.m. for the Markets in Turmoil show. I'll see you at noon on the halftime report after a big comeback on Wall Street today. Futures looking pretty good this hour. Of course, it is early. For all of us at CNBC, I'm Scott Wapner. Be safe. Shark Tank is next. CNBC has quick and easy to understand business news updates at the open midday and close every weekday. Markets, money, and more from Wall Street to Main Street. I'm CNBC's Jessica Ettinger. Follow and listen to CNBC Business News Updates wherever you get your podcasts.